Welcome to the Perseverance Podcast. My name is John Thompson. So glad that you're joining us. Maybe this is your first time, and so welcome to the conversation. Maybe you've been listening through the whole series. So glad that you're back. So um, today's conversation uh, is going to be, I think, very significant. It's uh, close to my heart. It's special. Uh, and I think it's really needed, not only in this moment in church uh, in the West, in the church in the West, but even beyond. Now, usually I'm hanging out with a friend or, or a colleague, and we're talking back and forth today. I'm going to take some time sort of to do this specifically, to walk through this conversation. And so today we're actually going to talk through a very um, important idea and a very churchy word, which I think is so significant. It's the word revival. Now, church history is littered, littered, littered with incredible moves of God where God showed up, did profound things. People have doctorates in them. People study them. I've had the great privilege of uh, reading and listening to people who have been through them and also reading a lot of church history. But there's also a lot of debate. What actually is a revival? How is it designated as a revival? How do we know? I mean, um, I'm recording this right now and within the last uh, less than a year, the Asbury moment took place down in, uh, in Kentucky, and uh, incredible stuff took place, but there's also a whole conversation that comes around that. So why don't we take um, uh, this time to walk through what's the difference between renewal, revival, awakening? How do you know if it's taking place? If it is taking place, this is the heart of the podcast. Um, how do you actually lead through it? And more interestingly, how do you prepare for the end of it? Uh, I hear so many people talking about wanting to experience renewal or even revival or praying for it, but very few people talk about how to prepare for the end of the thing that God starts. Uh, I was in London speaking uh, uh, in May to a bunch of uh, friends of mine who are Anglicans who are more charismatically oriented, and uh, they, I would genuinely say, are experiencing the beginnings of renewal, maybe even documented revival. And when I was there speaking actually on a different topic, I was very prompted to speak to them about how to prepare not only for the ongoing move of God's Spirit for a period of time, but for the end of it. As I listen to a lot of my friends around the globe, read books, as many of you do, listen to podcasts and blogs, uh, there seems to be sort of two extremes these days in this conversation. And it's not new. If you read church history, it's true there too. Uh, there's the one camp these days who who seem to be saying, you know, revival can happen anywhere and we should basically expect it. And the phrase I keep hearing, God goes where he's wanted. God shows up where he's wanted, which builds this guaranteed expectation-like sort of momentum that if we really want him and we're desperate for his presence, he's going to show up. And, and then there are a lot of other people who are like, I'm not sure. I think I heard Jackie Hill Perry the, the other day talking to Russell Moore at Christian Today, and she was like, it's more nuanced and, and broader than this, but she basically said, I'm not sure uh, if it can happen or it will happen. I got a lot of questions. So sort of in between the, I don't think it's going to happen or I'm not sure if it should, and it's going to happen if we want it desperate enough, I actually think uh, there's a really strong answer. Now, just to begin the conversation together today, um, this church, uh, I've been on staff for 25 years here, and this church actually experienced a three-year documented renewal that basically ebbed into revival uh, and was genuine. And so what I'm going to do uh, in this episode is I'm going to walk through some of that experience. I'm also going to walk through theologically how we know if and when it begins, how we know it, it's begun, how to prepare for the end, like I said, more theologically and biblically. And then at a later time in another episode, I'm going to sit with a great friend of mine and we're going to talk through how we co-led the church 
in a revival experience and all the mistakes we made, what we learned, how we were transformed and how it matters. So I'm going to begin uh, this conversation probably in an interesting, weird way, but it's revival. So why not be a little strange? Okay. Uh, I uh, teach at a seminary called Tyndale. It's the, I think the largest seminary here in Canada. And I teach a very boring, very uh, non-controversial course called Spiritual Conflict or Spiritual Warfare. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, we study it academically, personally, it's church history, all that stuff. And um, we were having actually a conversation about spiritual gifts and their relationship with spiritual conflict and a reform woman. So uh, for you who are listening, maybe um, uh, uh, in the States, you'd be familiar with this up here in Canada, Christian reform, Dutch reform. Of course, if you're in Holland listening, you're very familiar, but this is sort of globally all around the world. Uh, this was a, a woman of Dutch descent, uh, grew up Christian reform, I think, uh, very conservative, uh, evangelical leaning in the historic way. And she asked this question. She said, listen, can you help me interpret uh, something that happened to me? I said, well, I'll try. I, I don't know. And she said, okay. She said, uh, I'm Christian reform. I'm pretty conservative, pretty liturgical. You know, the charismatic thing's not my thing usually. And I have a friend of mine who's really charismatic and uh, one day she came and she laid hands on me and she prayed for me and she shook like a leaf and it freaked me out. But while she was shaking, everything she prayed was so profound and so true and so right. It actually transformed my life. And, uh, and what, what was that? And I said, oh, um, talk to me about it more. And we talked. It was very obvious. It was actually uh, the woman probably had a gift called words of knowledge. Uh, the way we define it here is she had access to information she, she had information she had no access to that humbled or healed this woman, didn't humiliate her. Uh, let me just say that again. The, a word of knowledge is when God gives a, a Christian uh, information about someone they have no access to that humbles them or heals them, never humiliates them. So, so there was this like profound moment. She was given words of knowledge and prayed that over this woman, and it was very uh, humbling and healing and all this amazing stuff. And then as I was watching this woman and think it through, I suddenly almost felt prompted, I think genuinely by the Holy Spirit, to ask uh, the Dutch reformer, Christian reform woman, this question, do you think you need to shake to have that gift? And she paused and said, I don't know, I think so. And I said, why? She said, I don't know, I just, it's the only time I've seen it demonstrated. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head where I went, oh my goodness, we have a lot of work to do in the church again to help people understand the difference between what's a gift, what's a discipline, and what's a physiological experience that might be from God and might not. And we really need to work out actually what's guaranteed. Because again, like I've shared in other episodes, one of the biggest things I'm always concerned about pastorally is expectations. Because if you don't root your expectations biblically. You can shipwreck people's faith. You can, you can overpromise or underpromise and actually miss what God is doing or overplay it. And so um, that moment where we were talking about actually spiritual conflict and spiritual gifts and all this stuff actually became an inception point for me to think through guaranteed, non-guaranteed, and gifts, disciplines, and experiences. So let me just start with this. Um, I would say um, spiritual gifts are, of course, guaranteed. I'm not a cessationist, so I believe all the gifts, of course, are available for today. And they're sovereignly assigned, and they're given to us to serve, and they're guaranteed. In other words, you don't have all 21. You don't have one one day and one the next day. That's a different podcast. The whole point is that is guaranteed. We should expect that. That's normal church. 
uh, discipline, spiritual disciplines is open to everyone. You can use all of the varieties depending on your personality and bias and all that stuff. And that is guaranteed. That is normative or normal. But what's not normal is actually revival. And that's different. And I just want to say as we get going today, I think a lot of people when they talk about renewal or revival in their mind, what they're praying for is actually what a normal church looks like according to scripture loving, empowered, loving the scriptures, empowered by the spirit, using spiritual gifts. Like, actually, I think revival is probably even more epic than we think. So I think as you read across the scriptures, most of you listening are church leaders, pastors, uh, key volunteers, etc., theologians. We would all say that there's this thing called common faithfulness. We as Christians and Christian leaders in the good, bad, beautiful times, uh, we just have to continue to be faithful. But there are sovereign moments where suddenly God, the God we've known our whole life and worshipped, and maybe we come from lineages that also worship the same God, God moves from omnipresence to palpability. He becomes more profound, more tang- tangible, uh, more overwhelming. We, we see this in all sorts of places, like the shepherds at Jesus' birth, Elijah on Mount Carmel, Isaiah's call, um, all of this stuff. Now, the word revival means to duplicate life. And that's just interesting. It presumes you already have life. And I think one of the best ways to talk about revival is it's just the closeness of God to his people. Stephen Olford, who a few of you might know, brilliantly said years ago that revival is a sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. But I just want you to hear that again. It's the sovereign act of God in which he restores his own people. Duncan Campbell, who, if you've read Revival History, incredible leader, said, basically, revival is a community saturated with God. Now, years ago, when we were talking about this for the first time in our own place, uh, you know, this is the language I started using. And these are interchangeable depending on what association, denomination, tribe you're part of. But I actually find these distinctions really helpful, especially for you who are leaders who are listening. Uh, I think renewal is a good word to use when an individual actually experiences a new thing with God. That's a renewal. Revival is corporate when the whole church is touched. Awakening is when actually revival spills beyond the church and and actually there's mass impact in society, especially through life change and mass conversions. Or conversions. So renewal is personal, revival is church-wide, awakening impacts culture and, and lives. So I just want to say this as we get going. Some of you are going to disagree with me. Some of you haven't thought this through well. Some of you have. Revival and awakening are not guaranteed like spiritual gifts and disciplines. Two are normative, one are not. And again, the reason why I want to emphasize this is because of expectations. So let me unpack uh, theologically where I think the scriptures go with this, and and then I'm going to talk about how this matters in a local church level, maybe in your own life, and your own thinking. I think the story in Matthew's account of the transfiguration is, is key. Now, if, if you know this, and I know lots of you have preached it, just before the Mount of Transfiguration, there's the profound moment where in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is with his disciples. And it says when Jesus came to this region, he asked his disciples, right, who, who do people say the son of a man is? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some say other, others saying Jeremiah, the prophets. And he says, but what about you? Uh, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, of course, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Not just prophet, not just spiritual teacher, not just political revolutionary, not just one incarnation of God, uh, not just one amazing religious teacher among many, not one path. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. You're the son of the living God. All right. After that confession, I think God the Father sets the stage for what is a pattern that we can map out when renewal and revival takes place. And the Father sets it up. So in Matthew 17, uh, we come to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Matthew 17, right? After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, John, brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, again, um, you know, I'm not preaching here. I'm not doing a lecture, but six days matter, right? Six days of creation. So something new is about to take place. Six days is connected to Moses' personal encounter with God. Interesting in Exodus 24, right? As Moses is literally sitting in and around the presence of God, fire, cloud, glory, for six days, it says the Lord said to Moses, come up on this mountain, right? Stay here and I'll give you the tablets of stone, the law, right? When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain. The seventh day, God speaks to Moses in the cloud, right? And it says the Israelites in verse 17 looked up at the glory of the Lord. It looked like a consuming fire. So, okay, great. That's the sort of Old Testament route to what's about to take place. Why does that matter? The thing that matters most is that uh, Jesus took them up. In other words, Jesus starts the process under God the Father's permission. Remember, Jesus, according to John, does nothing except what his Father tells him to do. So Jesus, under God the Father's permission, leads them up and starts the process, and they don't even know it's really fully going to happen. They just go up. They follow him. And remember... They're on a high mountain, and then Jesus is doing his thing. And I love, in Luke 9, it says his companions were very sleepy, right? They were falling asleep, all the things, boring life. We've done this a thousand times before. And then the overwhelming moment. Verse 2, right, in Matthew, in that account, Jesus was transfigured before them. Transfigured uh, is where we get our word metamorphosis from. It, it just means he was, trans, he was uh, transfigured in front of them. In other words, Peter, James, and John, who have been with Jesus, by the way, through all the things, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, you know, all these incredible things, the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, suddenly see Jesus as he actually is fully in heaven as the son of God, what Peter actually confesses in Matthew's, Matthew 16 now happens. It says his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. Mark says in Mark 9, his clothes became dazzling white, uh, uh, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. You know, I was saying this to our congregation when I preached through this a few times, like we are so used to light. Uh, we have light all the time. Uh, they didn't. And this is like, brighter than anything they'd seen. And it would seem that the light is actually not just on top of him, it's coming through him. Now, um, this is a pretty epic moment. So Peter, James, and John are led up by Jesus under God the Father's permission or will. Suddenly, unexpectedly, Jesus is seen fully. Then verse 3, most of you know it, then appeared Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So... <laughs> This is like gargantuan, and I just want to slow down. If you've preached this before and you know this, keep, the, keep your AirPods in as you're running or listening to this in the car. 
just stay with me for a bit. I'm going to tie this in at the end. So, I mean, both had their lives ended in supernatural ways, but we, of course, know that Moses and Elijah represent the Jewish faith. Moses is the great lawgiver and the friend of God. Elijah, the greatest miracle worker, comes to represent all the prophets. And, of course, we understand what's happening here. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the miracle worker, are there pointing to Jesus because the whole Old Testament is about the coming of Jesus. Now, Peter's response is brilliant and classically Peter, and we can't write him off because we'd say the same thing. Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> like, this is epic. I've wanted my whole, this is what I've wanted my whole life. And then he says, if you wish, I could put up three tents, three shelters, one for you, uh, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Uh, it, and I, of course he says this. This is the kingdom of God. I want to hang out here. This is what I've been promised my whole life. I don't want to go back to boring. I don't want to go to mundane. I don't want to go back to seven days of work and sickness and family fights and Romans and politics and war and dealing with disease and demons. And I love how Peter says, I can set up three tents. You know, I can go to a mountain equipment co-op or Bass Pro or whatever you've got, and I'll buy three tents, and we'll just live here. I love how he puts them on the same level, which shows, you know, immaturity of what's really going on. He's like building a strategic plan to live in the epic place. And uh, I get it. We would want that too. And then it gets more epic. Uh, Verse 5, the connection right back to Moses. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud spoke. So, um, again, I'm presuming most of you know this. This is the Shekinah glory, the, the dwelling, uh, dwelling of God. This cloud uh, is filled with lightning and overwhelming light and fire. It's no puffy cloud. This is no snuggly ad. <laughs> this is the real deal. This exact experience, like I've already read, was happened to Moses when the Ten Commandments was given. This is the same cloud that led uh, the Israelites, the Jews, um, uh, in the wilderness wanderings, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is the same overwhelming presence at the tabernacle with Moses that showed up. And it would literally, this cloud would come down and Moses would go in and speak to God as a friend speaks to a friend. This is the same glory that shows up, right, in 2 Chronicles. Uh, when Solomon dedicates the temple, it's the same overwhelming experience as Isaiah had, Ezekiel had at their callings. At Jesus' birth, the shepherds, uh, same sort of brightness. Uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, tongues of fire, the death of Stephen, Saul's conversion to Paul. All right, so God's glory, God's light, lightning, and most importantly, fire. And of course, again, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. You need to listen to him, the reality of the blessed trinity. Okay, I'm going to slow down now. Uh, this is um, pretty unbelievable. We forget sometimes that Peter, James, and John were Orthodox Jews. In that moment, they see more than any Jew has ever seen in history. They've literally got the Messiah in front of them. They've literally got Moses, who they've heard about their whole lives, in front of them, and Elijah in front of them, and the Spirit of God is literally present in front of them like used to happen in the Old Testament and God the Father's voice is there. These three experience heaven on earth, basically. And verse six, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. Okay. I'm going to tie all this together in the end, but let me just make this observation. When I was working a lot on 
working through spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines. Just like that woman, there was another set of categories that I kept coming up against I didn't know what to do with. There seemed to be physical, physiological things that happen to human beings when God gets really close. Uh, You can read verse 6 wrong and just say, oh, you know, they were sort of overwhelmed and they sort of bowed down. No, they went down. You know, you use Pentecostal language. It's carpet time. You know, slain in the spirit. Like this is this is this is not this is not a gentle, controlled Dutch Reformed Baptist moment. This is like they're down and they're terrified. Uh, Isaiah six: Woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips. Right, and so there's this physiological experience that happens during this renewal, renewal revival moment. I'm going to come back to that at the end. I just want to get that in your mind that if you read Scripture, when God sovereignly acts, there is something that transcends gifts and disciplines that's physiological, that doesn't make you more spiritual, but you can ignore. Okay, now I'm going to pause, and I'm just going to show you what's happened so far. God the Father ordains this, not human beings' desire. Jesus takes them up. They're expecting it, not expecting it. Suddenly, the sovereign work of God shows up. It's incredible. It's actually everything the heart wants, and it's terrifying. There's a physiological reaction, and they want to live there. G.I. Packer wrote this amazing little book called God in Our Midst, and he outlines basically revival as a process. And I'm going to take a moment just to read this. He says, number one, every time a revival is real, there's a new awareness of God's presence. He says the first and fundamental feature of revival is the sense that God is drawn awesomely near in holiness, mercy, and might. Second, There suddenly is a responsiveness to God's word. The message of scripture, he writes, which was previously making sort of like a superficial impact, uh, actually now searches the hearts uh, of people and just moves people. Third, there's a sensitivity to sin immediately. Uh, uh, Consciences become tender. Humbling takes place. Fourth, uh, he says there's liveliness in community, love, generosity, unity, joyness, joy, assurance, boldness, a spirit of praise and prayer, a passion to reach others. Like, it's like, let me put it like this in my own language. All the spiritual disciplines and all the spiritual gifts, which are normal and used regularly, are like lit on fire and everything changes. Though they themselves have not changed, it's sort of like they're on steroids. And lastly, there's faithfulness and testimony. Christian by word and deed actually proclaim good news, right? And then actually stuff begins to change in society. Here's why I want to address this. So many people say revival is guaranteed if you pray enough, sing enough, and you're desperate enough. Other people say, no, 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 it's probably not going to happen. If it does, you're just going to be totally sideswiped. I think what we see in the transfiguration and from revival history is this. If God... This is just going to slow down and say this. If God, in his sovereignty, wants to bring a renewal or revival, then he's the one who starts it and leads us up. Now, the preparation for revival is usually marked when God begins the process. And usually that process begins when he gives a promise to a leader or an individual or a small group of people. And he says, I am about to do this thing. It's not them begging him to do it. He says, I'm going to do this thing. And they start praying back his promise to him. Then in his time, then he sends the spirit, which reveals God's, you know, entirety fully in the the revival sense. He moves from omnipresence to palpability. We get terrified. 
We confess sin. We know our need. By the way, when revival happens, all secrets come out. All pain is exposed. Much of the time, if you let, you know, history speak, um, there is profound forgiveness that takes place, restoration and relationships. Like Packer says, a love for communion, a love for God's word, a love for godly things. But then also there is these physical manifestations that take place that are really uncomfortable, especially for us who are conservative, shaking and weeping and falling over and trembling, for example. There, there's a literal physical reaction to God showing up. And if you read church history, I mean, in all the different revivals, in all the backgrounds, holy laughter, weeping, falling over. Now, does this always happen? No, really important. Do those experiences make you more holy or more in tune? Not at all, not at all. But sometimes they still happen. Remember that woman with that gift? She had a spiritual gift, but there was a physical uh, accompaniment that didn't make her more spiritual, but might be something that's going on. We always have to evaluate. We talk through, through this all the time, theologically, in the books I've written, even in our own church. What's from God? What's from the devil, right? What's invented? What's mental illness? What's the hummus you ate last night? I mean, you got to do your homework. What I'm trying to point out here is when God moves in great power, not only is sin exposed and is there great renewal and love, a lot of times a lot of weird things happen. And here's the critical thing, especially as a person who grew up very conservative, weird does not mean wrong. I just want to say this again. Weird does not mean wrong. The question is, I mean, if it's overtly evil, of course, but weird, by the way, is a cultural thing. What's weird to a Nigerian is very different than what's weird to a German. I just want to say that. So weird is not wrong. The question is, what is the source of the weird? Think about John, John, Jesus's best friend. He was there for everything like Peter, but even more than that, because he didn't deny Jesus. He was there at the cross. He's the one who actually basically takes Mary home and takes care of her. He, you know, he, he writes all this stuff. And it, when he's 90, he receives, of course, the book of Revelation. And when Jesus shows up, in his glorified state to his best friend at 90 years old, you know this in Revelation 112, I, I turned around to see who was speaking to me. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Um, <laughs> he fell over. He didn't just bow down. He went down. And this was his best friend. And I've always sort of laughed, not laughed. Like John's 90. This is not a very nice geriatric moment, by the way. This is like, I'm just thinking about bones breaking, to be honest and stuff. But he, he goes down uh, and, and he goes down physiologically because of the glory of Christ. And what's really interesting is if you read John's account, well, he, he's, he's given the book of Revelation multiple times. Well, this genuine, incredible work of God's taking place, John makes terrible mistakes. It, it, you know, in Revelation 19, um, you know, an angel shows up, right? And, and. John basically falls down and worships the angel. And the angel says, what are you doing? Don't worship me, worship God. John wrote the gospel of John, everyone. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of, he's getting the book of Revelation. And he falls down and he worships an angel. And the angel says, why are you doing this? This is wrong. He does the same thing in Revelation 22.8. So um, what my point is, is that during incredible moves of God, right, there will be an overwhelming uh, presence of God, there'll be the confession of sin, there'll be physiological reaction, and there will be multiple mistakes made during a move of God. And what you've got to understand, and I've got to understand, is you can't dismiss a move of God when people do stupid things or wrong things. 
Actually, if you do that, you have to throw out most of your Bible. Think, think about the Jewish people in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, <clears throat> Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. The physical manifest, manifestation of God's presence, the Shekinah glory, lightning, fire, cloud, is on the mountain. And while Moses is in that cloud, they make the golden calf. They're literally looking at the physical presence of God, and they do that. So a lot of times people dismiss revival or renewal as fake or wrong or demonic because it's weird. No, that's not biblical. Number two, they say, well, what do we do with these weird physiological reactions? Well, that happens a lot, but it doesn't make you more spiritual. And three, they say, well, they teach wrong things or wrong things are done. God, Satan, and human flesh is always involved at a normal church moment, let alone in renewal. So you have to slow down and evaluate what's taking place. Well, Peter, James, and John on the mountain, overwhelmed, fallen down. This is epic. We need to live here. And then, of course, verse 7, Jesus came and touched them, get up. And they looked up, and he is alone, he's normal, and it's all done. The normal comes back. They go down the mountain. And by the way, if you know the story, faith, demons, politics, pain, disciples can't cast out demons, there's a whole fight. And they have to go back to normal again. Okay, this is why this matters. Uh, spiritual disciplines are for all of us to exercise at any season of life. And of course, like I've shared in other podcasts, they clear the space to be transformed and to listen. Spiritual gifts, sovereignly assigned, normal everyday life, and we use them. Revival is not normal. It's not always, and neither are the results. Much of the time during revival... Great power is given. Presence of God shows up. Of course, the disciplines and gifts, again, like I share, get stronger. But revival is started by God. And by the way, revival is ended by God. If it wasn't, we'd want to live there all the time and build tents. Some revivals last days. Some revivals last month, months. Some last years. And the reason why God sovereignly, from I would say from my perspective from Scripture, church history, and in my own life, and my own experience with this, does this, is to actually prep the community for the next assignment or the next thing. It is true, a lot of revivals take place when culture is at its worst, when the church is broken, and he pours out his spirit to set the next generation in the right direction. Okay, you're like, John, uh, some of you are like, I agree with that, I've never thought about that, that's really challenging, I totally disagree. Okay, fine. Uh, um uh, you're like, so what do I do with this? Here's what I want to give you as fellow leaders, pastors again, and key volunteers and elders or theologians or Christian influencers, whoever you are. Uh, number one, a lot of people ask, well, John, should we even pray for revival? And if it's hardly uh, sovereignly started, of course we should. Of course we should. Uh, we should say to the Lord, we want revival. We should say, oh God, I need renewal. We, we should pray all the time, oh my goodness. I mean, you might be in England listening to this. You might be in Germany right now, in Nigeria. You might be in Rwanda. You might be in Hong Kong. Every, no matter you know, your skin color, your background, your ethnicity, we all as Christians are like, man, my city needs Jesus. My family needs Jesus. Our world needs Jesus. So of course, we want to pray for an outpouring of his spirit to move from renewal to revival to awakening. So yes, we should pray. But here's the question I want to ask you. Are you willing to hear him say no? Are you willing to hear God in his sovereignty say not yet? See, it's funny, you know, I, um, 
as a Canadian, right, uh, leading a local church here, but also working with church uh, leaders across our country, I mean, globally, but in our country. And a lot of people ask me, John, what's your take on the run? What do you think is going to happen in Canada? Because Canada, like, Canada's in a really interesting position. I mean, we are really, really post-Christian. Um, even my friends from Australia and England say to me, it's like, we woke up and you guys had gone like even six steps ahead of us. And so, you know, when I talk to people, say, they say, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. My, I'm just a guy and I'm here today and gone tomorrow like the rest of us. But I, I wonder uh, what's going to happen. It might be we're preparing for a spiritual winter. Like God might not revive the church in our country or in a city. And he calls us to persecution or common faithfulness. Or he might move. I, here's what I'm asking you as leaders. Don't presume he's not going to do it and don't presume he's going to do it. Why don't you pray for a revival? By the way, if you don't pray for a revival, you need to start. Um, we sing a lot of songs about revival. I don't think we know what we're really asking for, but we sing them. Pray for it, but then just stop and say, Lord, yes or no? If he says no, then on we get with common faithfulness. But if he says yes, then we ask, what's the promise and how do I prepare? And then, of course, if he does begin it, then everything will change. You know, a lot of us um, don't want to see revival because we're afraid about sin, about control, and about fear. There are so many leaders, even you listening to me now, the reason why in your heart of hearts you really don't want revival is because you are, you are afraid, you are fear-driven, and you are controlling. And if God really showed up in great power, like the transfiguration or like in Revelation, what are you going to do with all the weird stuff that takes place? And you're like, I can't handle that, so just don't do this here. Well, actually, you want the move of God if he chooses to give it. Others of you have been through revivals and renewals, and the reason why things are so tough at your church is because it's old manna. You're trying to eat rotten things. And so you're trying to actually uh, perpetuate what happened and it's done. And you actually aren't okay that it's done. And I see this, especially in charismatic churches. They try replicating sometimes the physical things that happened when God was close. And then it just becomes death and dust and performance and wicked. So my uh, humble uh, suggestion is that every leader listening to this says, Lord, do you want to bring renewal and revival to where I am? If the answer is no, I will remain faithful. If the answer is not yet, Lord, teach me patience. If the answer is yes, Lord, give me the promise to start praying us, praying it back and help me to get ready to walk up the mountain. If it's done, though, then I just need to say this, especially to some of you listen, then grieve. Grieve. Let me assure you that Peter, James, and John grieved after they came off the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, I'm going to um, spend time talking uh, uh, with my good friend uh, in a later episode about what we went through here. But I'll uh, tell you, I can't talk about this without crying. I am, um, what happened here and what happened to me when God showed up in our church and in my life in an extraordinary way, I miss it so much. Uh, so much. And, uh, 
There is nothing, uh, man, there's nothing more beautiful than Jesus, but he's close. Even when he's rebuking you. And uh, I'll just tell you that um, if you talk to any one of us who is led through a renewal or revival, there's deep um, grief that it's over. And uh, and so, as Christian leaders, we have such responsibility to ask if it's going to happen. And if it's a no, we have to be really faithful and help our people persevere in dark times. And if it's not yet, then we have to learn a patience and an awareness and a tuneness that most of us aren't willing to do. And if it's a yes, it's it's a real honor and uh, it's incredible. And by the way, as I'll share in the next episode or when we do it, it's incredibly difficult to lead through and really awesome. But most leaders don't prepare for its ending. Because when renewal and revival ends, you go back to demons and politics and church is normal again. It forms you for the rest of your life. I'll never be the same. I'm not the same after what God did here for three years. But uh, man, it took me a long time to recover uh, when, when it stopped. My encouragement to you... Um, is, like I've shared, to ask the Lord if it's a yes, no, or maybe. Uh, My encouragement uh, for all of us is to stop guaranteeing things to our people that aren't guaranteed or actually telling them it will never happen when it might. But I also think, uh, one last thing maybe I'll just share is that... um, If the Lord in his sovereignty does tell you yes, I think there's a few people in my friendship circle or my acquaintance and friendship circle globally, especially in the States, where I think some of my friends have been given the yes. I think they would use its guaranteed language to everyone. Um, So we'd probably disagree. But uh, if you get a yes... Uh, then you be like Jacob and you wrestle with God till it happens. There's nothing. uh, There's nothing more transformative than this. Uh, Marriages get reconciled overnight. All secret sin in the church is exposed in, in weeks or days. If you're a preacher, people will listen to your preaching in a way that's not natural. You won't care about (laughs) Netflix or uh, things like that, though they're not bad. Don't worry, I'm watching Ahsoka right now. I love it. But like, you just won't care for a period and If you've got the yes, you fight for it because it's a gift. And um, if you do get the yes, here's my last thought. 
You need to ask the Lord, especially if you're a leader, what he's going to do during this yes situationally. Because it's going to give you insight to what he's going to do in your church, your region, or your country next when it ends. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to end it. Why does this relate to perseverance? Um, simple. Uh, we're not going to persevere if we have wrong expectations. It's hard enough on the best of days or the worst of days. And so as it comes to renewal, revival, and awakening, read church history, yes. Pray for it, yes. See if you get the sovereign permission. If you get the no, be faithful. If you get the maybe, pray for patience. If you get the yes, ask why. And the definition, that, that's really important. What will the vibe be? What will be the definition? What will be the emphasis of that move of God? Because it will give you strategic insight to what God's going to do next. I hope this was uh, challenging, thoughtful, and helpful. Uh, like I said, we're going to do another episode of how myself and one other pastor actually led through it, what we experienced uh, what was amazing and terrible and undoing for us, why we're not the same, how we led our community through it and how it ended. How it ended, by the way, is funny and also really in, um, intriguing. And I hope you'll find that helpful. So thanks for being with us uh, uh, today on the Perseverance Podcast. Would encourage you again to like it, to share it. You might want to share this one with a lot of other people who are trying to wrestle through this well and uh, hope that you're encouraged today. We'll see you as we hang out for the next episode uh, here on this podcast. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>